As you can tell, we're working through a series in the book of Titus. So Titus is a small little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church planter in Crete. So Crete is in the Mediterranean, beautiful place, very ugly people, all right? So what has happened is there are people that are known as liars, as brawlers, literally fist fights all the time, that everything that comes out of their mouth, you can't tell what's worthy of being trusted. And so there's just this deception that's a culture in the life of Crete. And then Paul and Titus have come in and they've tried to plant a church. And so Paul has left this place already, but he, he keeps Titus there so that Titus can, what Paul says, set right what was left undone. So they started a church. It's not in complete, uh, it's not complete yet. And so Titus has been left there to try to bring all the loose ends together. And so what Paul has done so far is he's allowed us to see what the household message of God is, which is the gospel. The gospel is that Christ has lived perfectly. He's died completely. And then he's risen victoriously all on our behalf. That the a right relationship with God comes completely through Jesus and God has done all the work for us and it's simply us placing our faith in Jesus for what he's done. This is a message that brings us into the household, but we never move beyond the message within the household. It's not just the thing that brings us in, but it's the new life that we live within the relationship that we have with God. From there, we looked at these qualifications that Titus or Paul works through for Titus on what the household leadership looks like. So he lists out these qualifications for these pastors and these church leaders. Essentially, what all overall what he's trying to say is the leaders of the church are to be these people that are shaped by God. And the reason they're to be shaped by God is because we want a people that are shaped by God. Usually what you see within a household is that the leaders of the household shape the people within the household. And so God is recognizing this. He's actually the one that's put that design into place. And so he says, I want you to choose leaders that have been shaped by Jesus because I want my whole church to be shaped by Jesus as well. That's what we worked through last week. And then this week, we're working through what life within the household of God looks like, all right? So if you look at ancient history, there's these things called household codes that happened back at this point in time. It still happens today too, all right? So it goes as far back as Aristotle, all right? So he has, this, I'm not gonna read anything from this because it's a lot. So, but Aristotle, he works through these like household codes of how you're to conduct yourself within a home back at this point in time. Paul kind of carries this over in what we're about to look at here in Titus 2, but we still do this today, all right? We still have like these household codes or these household sayings that we do. So here's a couple, just for example, I'll give you some examples from my house as well, but you can probably recite these or finish these as I'm about to say them, right? So here's the ones that you've probably heard. If mama ain't happy, then... Nobody's happy. Anybody hear that one in their house? Yeah? That's a household code. I brought you into this world. That's a household code, all right? Hey, you should respect me. I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. Show me some respect. That's essentially what you're saying. Another one, if you can't say anything nice, then... That's right. These are all household codes. This is how you function within the home. This is how we treat each other. This is the way that we're going to move forward as a family. These are household codes, right? So here's some, like, you probably had some own that you, your parents made up for your own house. Whether they, like, kind of put them in stone or whatever, I don't know. But here's some of the ones that we say in our house. Just hopefully you can get some kicks and giggles for our house, all right? So here's one. Wilson's never give up, all right? Wilson's never give up. So the reason we kind of put this in place is because we notice in our home that kiddos can get frustrated and want to give up really easily. And so we want to instill in them, no, like we, we're going to be a determined family. If we're going to work through the difficulties of it. We're going to practice things until we kind of learn how to do them. We actually uh, ate our own words here recently. So Sutton is our second at school, one of his friends lost a ring at recess. My wife was up there trying to help this little girl find the ring. They have the whole class looking for it on the playground. They can't find it. They're about to move on. Sutton comes up as they're about to move on and says, no, Wilsons don't never give up. And so Cherish and one of the assistant principals looked at each other and were like, well, I guess we got to keep going. And so they kept going for the rest of recess. So we ate our words there. Second one, we don't keep secrets, all right? 
In our household, we don't keep secrets. Here's what, essentially what we're trying to say. is like your house is a safe place. Your mom and me are safe people. You can come and talk to us about anything. Um, one of the things you actually see if you look at like predators today is that they try to talk with kids about keeping secrets from mom and dad. We don't allow that in our house. We want a place that is safe and secure that they can come and talk to us about anything. If there's any place that they can talk to anybody about anything, it's in their home and it's to mom and dad. The third one is that we work to play, all right? So essentially what we're trying to say is we finish what's important so we can focus on what's fun. Anybody ever have a hard challenge of finishing assignments or work because you want to play? Well, that happens in our home all the time. So we work to play so we can get what's done so we can focus on what's fun. So in this passage that we're looking at this evening, Paul is kind of teasing this out, these household codes for the church that I believe are just really important. You see Paul address five different groups of people within the life of the church. We're gonna work through that here in a moment. But here's why I believe this is really important for us is why we're kind of focusing on this. We're a brand new church. As you heard, we're about to celebrate one year of being a church. And what we have is we have a room filled with people that are all in different ages and stages of life. And so you probably have wondered if you've been in this church or a different church, like, well, what's my place in this church and how am I to function within the church? Anybody ever questioned or wondered what that really looks like for you? Well, Paul's addressing that here. Paul's trying to wipe out any of the confusion so you can know what it looks like to live within the family of God under the rule of God here in this world with his people. That's what he's teasing out here. And so I believe like this is really critical for us as we're trying to wrestle with what does it look like for us to get a clear vision for us, a path forward as the church, all right? And so here's what we're gonna do tonight. We're gonna work through these five groups and essentially here's what I'm trying to do. I want us to answer the question, what is life within God's household like, all right? I want us to catch a vision here. I believe Paul through a lot of different qualities of these different five people groups, he's trying to lay before us a vision of what it looks like to be the church and to function as a church in this world. And then to follow up with that, we'll ask the question, why? All right, what, what's the reason of these household codes? What's the reason for why Paul's instructing us to act in these ways within the household of God? We need a reason why. Um, John Stott, he's this old pastor. He puts it like this. We need to know not only how we ought to behave as Christians, but also why. Yeah, anybody ever feel that? It's like, it's like parents trying to tell you to do something, and then their response is, because I told you so. It's like, well, that's not helpful, Right? John Stott's essentially saying we need instructions about the kind of people we ought to be, but we also need incentives. So what is Christian behavior? We need to know that, but also what are its grounds, which is what we'll answer at the very end of this, all right? So let's start with the five groups. The question is, what is life within God's household like? All right, so five groups. Let's start with older men because that's who Paul starts with. So just really upfront. What Paul, if you look at the language here, um, the people, like the age range would probably be about 60 and over for older men, all right? So here's, I'll give you a refresher of what he says about older men, and then we'll work through what this actually means. So verse two says this. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible in sound and faith, love and endurance, all right? So Josh's like summary here, Paul is calling older men to model spiritual maturity in the church. Paul's saying like, look, if you want to have a vision of what mature spirituality looks like in the life of the church, older men, you're to be that example. You're to be the ones that model that for the rest of the church. I get this from what Paul is saying in the qualifications that you see here. And the idea is imitation and not admiration, all right? So the qualities that Paul describes here, they're absolutely worthy of our respect. There's, there's supposed to be things that we'd hold in high honor, all right? But the goal here is not that you're getting a pat on the back because of how spiritually mature you are, but rather you're trying to point people to how sweet it is to follow Jesus throughout all of life. That's what this model of these older men is to be for the life of the church, that the church can look at their life and not then pat them on the back and be like, man, you did awesome. 
Like, you're great. I hope to be you one day. That's not the end goal. The end goal is that they can see the old men in the church and they can imitate them because they see how sweet it is to follow Jesus throughout this life, both in the highs as well as the lows. All right, so let's look through the qualifications and hopefully you can kind of get a sense of the picture as I've just put it, all right? So first, he says this, they're to be self-controlled. This means that they're to avoid extravagance or overindulgence in this life, meaning you've mastered or you've controlled your body as well as its passions. That there's not this thing that speaks into your life or that dominates your life that has master over you, but because of the power of the gospel inside of you, you've actually been able to master your own body and your own passions. You're not pulled or swayed by things in this life or even the internal strife that's going on, going on inside of you, but actually you are the master, the one that's in control over your body and its passions. Secondly, you're worthy of respect, which means you have impeccable character. It means that you keep your word and that you can be trusted. That if you say, hey, I'm going to show up and I'm going to help you with this certain thing, that you can trust that that person's actually going to show up and that they're going to follow through. Thirdly, sensible, talking about discretion or judgment. And this comes from walking with God over many, many years. Here's what this means. It means that you can tell what is important to God, what his values are. And then as things approach you in this life, as you see the things that are happening, the options that you have, there's things, doors that you can walk through, that you have enough, enough sense and enough judgment in your life because you walked with Jesus so long that you know what God values and you're able to choose what's actually most important to him. It's not a deciphering of your own desires or your own opinions, but you've been able to step back. You know the word of God well enough. You know who God is and what Jesus has done in this life. You know what he values, so you walk with Jesus and you go towards the things that he values, not just the things that you want internally. Does that make sense? You're sensible. You know how to move forward and choose what God ultimately desires. Then you see him say that they are sound in faith, love, and endurance. All right, this word sound here is actually means, it's like a medical term, and it means healthy or proper or whole, all right? So what Paul is saying is that you don't have a sick faith, you don't have a sick love, you don't have a, a sick endurance where these other things from the world have infected you, and it's plucked away things from the goodness of the gospel that Jesus has lived, died, and risen again perfectly on, all on your behalf. There's not a pulling away of any of the things of this good news, but rather there's a wholeness, there's a properness to it, and there's a health to it. So, as you look at the older men in the life of the church that are walking, as Paul has said, it means that their faith, it shows others that God truly can be trusted in this life. Like, just stop and think about that. If you have somebody that's walked with Jesus so long that when you look at their faith, it shows you that God actually can be trusted in this life. That's what Paul is laying before you. A, a healthy love towards God towards the world and towards his church, that whenever you look at older men in the life of the church, that you can see what it actually looks like to step in and love somebody sacrificially, laying down your life for another person. Endurance, which means you've gone the distance, that they haven't like strayed and like gone off after so many years, it's like you almost got there. No, these are like men that's like, I, they've gone the distance. Like they've remained faithful. They, they continue to move forward with Jesus because they have nowhere else to turn. That's who Paul is speaking of here. And like, good grief. Don't we need this in the church, y'all? Like, oh my gosh, I, I want this for the life of our church. All right, look, in an age where it almost seems like you're praised if you start thinking and deconstructing your faith, we need models in the church that show us what it looks like to go the distance with Jesus. We need people that show us that it's not just like this idea, like whenever life gets hard, that things that you wanted to go your way didn't go your way, that you start to question everything and you completely deconstruct everything that you once believed. But you need people that have gone through the really difficult times. 
You need people that have shown you that you have this wrestle with sin in your life and that you are a person that's willing to lay down and be humble and own your wrongs and move forward in repentance and showing other people what it looks like to live within that repentance in this life. We need this in the church so deeply. And it's a beautiful picture for what we can be, and even some of you that are sitting here tonight can be for all of us that are in the life of this church. We need you. We need you to go the distance. We need to see what it looks like to live with sweet Jesus for all of life. Please be a model to us. We need you. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to older women. You see this in verse 3. He says, In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to excessive drinking. They're to teach what is good. So again, in Josh's language here, women, older women are to be a rich spiritual resource to the church. All right, here's where I'm getting this. Let's look at the, the different qualifications that Paul places here. So he says, reverent, reverent in behavior. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. All right, what is, it draws its roots from that of a priest. So look, what Paul is saying is that older women, you should be priestly-like in your holiness in the way that you live. That there's a devotedness to Jesus that other people can look at you and they can see what it means to follow Jesus with a deep sincerity in your life. Secondly, that you're not slanders means you don't abuse people with your words. This word slander is actually the word that's used to describe Satan 32 times in the New Testament. It means like an accuser. That you're, it's not just talking about like a, a gossip, but it's somebody that's actually using your words to harm other people by the way that you speak with your mouth. These older women, they're the exact opposite of that. They're not people that are accusing, but they're actually using your words to encourage people within the life of the church, to lift people up with their words. They're not just looking for the faults inside of people. They're looking for the things to encourage, to help people continue on and to grow in these good things. One pastor said that men are more inclined to abuse physically, and, but women are more inclined to abuse verbally. Paul's saying this shouldn't be amongst you older women in the life of the church. Thirdly, they're not slaves to excessive drinking. Again, excessive, right? It's like, hey, you know, in a good social setting, have a good drink, right? But don't be excessive. What he's essentially trying to say is like, hey, don't be an addict to anything. All right? One pastor that I read this week, um, actually a conversation that I had with another pastor this week, he defined addiction as anything we do to get away from the heart. So look, what I believe Paul's kind of saying here is you don't get numbed by the pain of life running to things like alcohol or other addictions that, can, that you don't have to deal with the hardship of your own heart. But these older women, rather than running to things like wine or drink, they actually deal with the issues of their heart. They know what it's like to know exactly what's going on inside of you. The hurt, the woundedness, the divided nature inside of you, knowing that you like you want to go after good things, but you have this thing that you want to keep going after the things you know are going to bring destruction in your life. You can deal with these issues of your heart. That's what Paul's getting at here when he says you're not excessive drinkers. Teach what is good means that you teach what is heavenly. Mm, isn't that good? You teach what is heavenly. Not just the things that, you're, you're not going by the standards of this world, but you actually know you have a hope in Jesus and this kingdom that he has brought in part through his life, death, and resurrection that's gonna come in full when he comes again, you know that there's this Holy Spirit that lives inside of you that empowers you to live within this kingdom here and now with his people and you're instructing and you're teaching others what this looks like. Look, you need, we need to stop here, all right? You, we need to recognize that Paul, we need to take in the whole scope of his teaching. Paul's not telling women to shut up in the life of the church. He's telling them to speak up in the life of the church. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
There's a time and a place for older women to speak into the life of the church to help us know what it looks like to live heavenwardly. We need you. We need you to speak up and to speak in. This isn't a, a go-home situation. We, we need you to speak up and speak in. So look, this is beautiful, isn't it? Older men that are showing us what it looks like to be spiritually mature, the willing to go the distance, older women that have the spiritual resource to us in the life of the church that we can see what it looks like to walk with Jesus, to have this, rev- re- this reverence for him in the way that we live. Like they're not bound by anything in this world, but actually they do deal with the issues in their heart. And then they <clears throat> work to pass these things off to the next generation. Like this is a gift. It's a complete gift to the life of the church, all right? So, like, let me pause here, right? Um, older generation, if you'd be so uh, kind to let me speak in here, all right? First, as you're thinking through this stuff, here, just as, like, the younger generation, I feel like I'm almost, like, in this, sco- this stopgap between, like, the older generation and the younger generation, all right? Um, so, like, kind of having a foot in both, here's, here's what I would say. We don't need your perfection, Older generation, we don't need your perfection. We have that in Jesus, all right? We don't need your perfection. What we need is a model for what it looks like to have people that go before us that are humble enough to confess when they're wrong and then walk in repentance before us. We don't have many examples of that. We don't. We long, like one of the reasons why we long for um, people to be transparent One of the reasons why younger generations are so drawn to those that are open and honest is because we don't have a lot of examples of it. There's like a deep yearning and desire to see people that are just truly themselves and then own their weakness and their sin and then come in before us, ask for forgiveness, and then walk in that forgiveness with us. Like we need that. We need to see that. We don't need your perfection. We actually need the opposite. We need, to show, we need to see that you are humble and low enough to own your wrongs, to own your weaknesses, and then walk in repentance before us. We need to see what that looks like. We don't have a lot of examples. But then secondly, the way that you do this, because I feel like this could be like a very daunting reality as you're thinking about what it looks like to be spiritually mature before a people that watch you as well as those that or a spiritual resource for those that are younger than you, you, all, you don't make this your end goal, all right? The end goal is not to be a spiritual model for other people. The end goal is to walk and to know Jesus with intimacy. So there's a pastor, Tim Keller, he talks about this in the idea of joy. I'm not like making this up. He says, if you, you want to go after joy and you want to get joy, you don't make joy your end goal. That's not the thing that you chase after. If you want joy, then you go after God because God is the ultimate source of our joy. And whenever you go after God, then you get joy as a byproduct. So if you want to be a spiritually mature person that models what walking with Jesus looks like, it's not that you make being a model your end goal. It's actually chasing after Jesus and then being a spiritual model to those in the life of the church as the byproduct. So look, it's not a matter of I need to do this right. I need to be this for the other people. I need to show up. If I don't do this, I'm letting other people down. That's not what we're trying to put before you here. That's not what Paul's trying to put before you. He's trying to say, chase after Jesus with all that you have. And as you do this, you're gonna walk in reverence. You're gonna walk in holiness. You're gonna grow in spiritual maturity to where then you can be this for the church. See that? All right, so... We've addressed the older generation. Thank you for letting me speak in for a second. Younger generation, you're up next. And so this is essentially anyone that's 60 and below. All right, so if you are kind of in that middle stage, so like maybe you're in like your 40s and 50s, right? Um, Look, the goal is that you're moving towards that older generation rather than hanging on to the younger generation. Does that make sense? Like, We're not looking for Peter Pans in the life of the church, people that are refusing to grow up. Like we want to be people that are going for the spiritual maturity, not clinging to the immaturity. That's what we're looking for here. All right. So Paul starts with younger women. So we'll start there too. We see this in verse four. 
so that they may encourage the young women, the speaking of the older women, they encourage the younger women. So as Paul says, they, they instruct in the church. It's speaking into the life of these, this younger generation of women and what this looks like to follow Jesus. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered, all right? So there's a lot of landmines for me to navigate here, so please be gracious with me. All right, so essentially here's my words of what Paul is trying to say. Paul is calling young women to be a blessing to those around them. He's calling you to be a gift. That you are a person that brings life to other people rather than that's like sucking the life out of people. All right, here's where I'm kind of getting this. Work with me through some of these things that Paul describes of them. He says first that you love your husbands and children, all right? So this is not speaking of love that's like intimacy for the marriage bed. It's actually speaking of a love that's a committed love. Like the strong and deep commitment to the relationships. Speaking of that with your husband and your kids. So there's a love that you show to both your kids as well as your husband, if you are married and you have kids, there's this no conditions type of love. There's this no limits kind of love to your love that you cultivate within life of your home. That's what it's talking about. It's not like this love that if you meet this certain standard, then I'll show you love, but rather it's a love, that, this unconditional love that you step in with the love that Jesus has shown you. This isn't something that you're just like doing on your own behalf, but you're looking at Jesus as you step in and do this. Secondly, is that you're self-controlled again, like control your desires as well as practice discernment in this life. Third, is that you're pure, meaning you're not corrupt, that you don't act shady, nor do you live shady, right? So if you put those to get two together, like self-controlled as well as pure, um, you live in a way that you don't hurt others accidentally or intentionally, See that? If you're self-controlled, it means that you, with your actions, you're not hurting other people unintentionally. If you're not self-controlled and you're just kind of pursuing your own desires and pursuing your own way, there's a way that you can unintentionally hurt people. But whenever you also are pure, it means that you're not shady and you're not doing practices, you're not conducting business in such a way that you're purposefully hurting other people or taking advantage of other people as well. So you're actually for other people, both intentionally and unintentionally by the way that you live your life. Does that make sense? Your workers at home. All right, this is the first landmine. All right, so not saying young women are to only be homemakers. That's not what Paul is saying here, all right? There's ways that this verse has been abused throughout the church and that we need, I'm trying to step in here. Come back, we're gonna start Genesis and we're gonna speak about this a lot, okay? So let me just speak here briefly, all right? So Paul is saying that women and men have responsibilities at home that they shouldn't neglect, all right? So if you look at another letter that Paul writes to um, Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.13, what Paul is speaking against is these young women who were lazy and then ran from home to home just to be kind of like, gossips or to have like social like endeavors with people or even to like have drinking parties with one another. What Paul is saying is like you as a young woman that you have responsibilities at the home just as men do, okay? Do you understand that? Not just saying that you're to be a homemaker. Men have responsibilities in the home too. Paul's saying that you don't neglect those responsibilities in the home because you want to be a person that stands up with true character that blesses her home as the husband is to do as well. Does that make sense? So they are workers in the home, husband and wife working together to build a home, not neglecting their roles or their reasons for stepping into the life of the church or life of their home, but rather they are people that are showing responsibility in the life of the home. There's a way, many people have said this, so I don't know who to credit it to. They say, if you want to change society, then it starts in individual homes. Paul is saying, young women, you have a role in that. You want to change society, then like step into your home and the responsibility that you have within the life of the home so you can see your home be this alternate home in the life of our society that can ultimately change our culture. That's the call that Paul's placing before you. Last, uh, fourth, fifth one. 
um, kind. All right, so this is, you're to be kind both inside the home as well as outside the home. The idea here with last week we talked about hospitality for pastors and it's a, a way that you welcome people in that don't know Jesus but you love them as Jesus has loved them. There's the same idea here for women that you love those that are outside of the church and that you're kind to them in such a way that they would see the kindness of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. And then the last one, huge landmine, um, submissive to your husbands, all right? So Paul, here's what Paul is not saying, all right? So a lot of times we view this through the ways that it's been used wrongly rather than the way that Paul is trying to say it instructively in the life of uh, the church. So Paul's not saying that there's an inferiority between man and woman. They're both created in the image of God. Nor is it a husband's demand for obedience upon his wife in the life of the home. Every time that you see that submission is talked about in the Bible, it's always an instruction to women. It's never a demand on a husband's part to a woman, all right? Um, So God's design for the marriage is mutual submission with very distinct roles in the life of the church, all right? There's There's no, like, superiority in the home, all right? There isn't. Nor is Paul saying that you should, like as a woman, he's instructing a woman in the life of the home to follow a husband in sin and disobedience in the life of the home. That is not what's happening here. If you really get a picture of what Paul's describing for the home, it's that a husband is to lead out in sacrificial love. He's to be like Jesus was for the church. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life to the point of death, death on a cross, that he would love the church and bring her into life and relationship with God, giving all of the things that he had earned and deserved in this life to the church. Absolute blessing, complete sacrifice. And look, Jesus and God isn't asking anything of women in the life of the church that Jesus doesn't first do himself. He submits to the Father going to the cross in perfect submission and dying the death that you and I deserve to die. So look, for the picture of the home, it's that the husband is sacrificially loving to the point that he's willing to lay down his life. This means that the husband is the one that's stepping in and doing the dirty dishes whenever the dishes are running over the sink. It means whenever he gets home, he's getting down on his knees and he's playing with the kids in the life of the home, even though he may be completely exhausted from the day that he has done. It means that he's laying down the things that he wants to do, whether it's going to play a video game or wanting to go out with the dudes, but he actually places his wife as more important than himself and is willing to lay down the things that he wants to do in order to sacrifice so that he can lift up his wife, maybe giving her a breather to get out of the home and go out for a ladies' night, whatever it may be. It means that there's a sacrifice that is continuing to happen on the life of the man to build up the woman in the home so they can partner to build the home that God has called them to build. Does that make sense? And Paul is saying, look, as your husband leads out in this way, when he calls you to be submissive to your husband, it's saying, hey, I see the, the sacrifice that you're making in the home and I want to be a part of this and I'm going to come alongside of you and I'm going to be your partner to build a home that models this. Does that make sense? So look, it's not this matter of like men are better and your women are superior or like that there's this abusive nature that Paul's advocating for the home. It couldn't be completely different from the truth. What Paul is advocating for is I want your homes to be a model of the gospel. What Christ has done for the church, I want there to be a symbiotic relationship in the life of the home that then portrays this to a watching world. So in conclusion, Paul, for both young men and young women, is saying live in such a way that your life is a blessing to those around you. Live in such a way that you're giving your life away to other people. All right? We see something similar with the men um, it's just a short verse, um, but it's kind of packed full of meaning, all right? So here's what he says. Verse 6, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything, all right? So you may look at this and be like, well, you got a 
walk before, you got to crawl before you can walk kind of thing with men, <laughs> like young men. It's like, just be self-controlled. Let's start there. And then as you kind of get that down, then we can progress and move on. But the in everything is really important for us here. So essentially, in my words, Paul is calling young men to live in such a way that others can count on them. Live in such a way that other people can count on you in this world, all right? It leaves nothing accounted for because Paul includes that, that phrase, in everything, all right? It shows self-control literally in every sphere of your life. So self-control is the last phrase that comes in the fruit of the Spirit. So it's kind of a summarization of all of those that Paul lists out in Galatians chapter 6. And so at this time, young men shouldered a lot of responsibility in society for their immediate family, for their own homes that they are building with these women that they married, for their own kids. They shouldered a lot of responsibility, and so they were to be essential providers in every sphere of their life by modeling self-control. And for a group often known for living very selfishly as well as impulsively, they were being counted on in tremendous ways. And so Paul is calling this group not to neglect their responsibility, but actually to live into it. Right? And so Paul is saying, live with a sense of responsibility and a self-control that others can actually count on you in the way that they need to, to move the house forward. All right? So there's a pastor um, that he's part of one of the networks that our church is a part of. And uh, he was speaking at a conference. This is, he was speaking of his dad, who is also a pastor. And he said that his dad always took a picture with him when he traveled to go speak, speak at different places, that was a picture of his family, all right? So um, wife in the middle, kids around her, and he placed it up on his nightstand at every hotel room that he went to. And he said the reason that his dad took that picture is because he needed a reminder that he had people that were counting on him back at home, that he had a wife that was counting on him, that he had kids that were counting on him. He was a pastor of a church that was counting on him. And so he brought that as a sense of accountability so that he could express self-control in every sphere of his life because he wanted to live up to the challenge. He wanted to live up to the responsibility that other people were counting on him. That's what Paul's calling these young men to do. Don't avoid being a person of responsibility, but lean into and show self-control in such a way that people can, can count on you in every sphere of life. So Paul is calling both young men and women to give your life away for the benefit of other people. Young women, live in such a way that you're a joy and you're a blessing to people that you bring life to others rather than sucking life out of them. Young men live in such a way that you're self-controlled and responsible that other people can count on you. And look, in a world that preaches that you bend for me, what Paul is laying here before us is a differing vision that we bend for other people. In a world that I'm going to get my own, if you get in my way, we have a cancel culture that we just shun other people. If you don't accept me for who I am. Like if there's any way that you're keeping me from the end goal that I want to go towards, then you're just, you're not any use to me anymore. Paul's saying we bend towards other people here as young, as young people, young women, young men, in order to see the goodness of the gospel move forward. It sounds refreshing. So young people, look, Here's what Paul is not saying, that you have to have this figured out on your own, all right? That's the reason why he puts the older generation before the younger generation. So look, ask for help. Ask for help. If there's a point in your life where it's like, I don't know what wise discernment looks like through which door to move forward, talk to the older generation, if there's a place where you're like, man, I, I don't know what it looks like for me to live out the goodness of the gospel within the life of my home, my relationship with husband, spouse, wife is really challenging right now. I don't know what it looks like for us to like show the goodness of the gospel and like ask for help. Let other people speak in. You're not called to do this on your own. You're not called to have all the answers. So ask for help. It's okay. 
Like, step in. Ask for somebody to speak in to your life, all right? Now, the last one is the last landmine that we have to navigate because Paul lists out instructions for bond slaves or servants, all right? So before we dive into this, um, let me say a couple of things, all right? So first, slavery was different here in this point in time than it was for our history in the life of our nation. So slavery wasn't based by race. Um, Oftentimes you went into slavery to pay off debt. So you'd work for somebody until you could pay off the debt that you owed them for a loan that you took out for them. So it's very different than what we have in our our history here in the United States. But secondly, Paul is also not advocating for slavery, all right? So the very next letter that you have, Philemon, Paul is actually advocating that the owner of a slave that he's writing on behalf of would actually give him freedom, all right? So Paul, what he's doing here is slavery was a way of life at this point in time. And so Paul is addressing how to conduct yourself while in the system of slavery while it's still in place. He wants it gone, but while it's here, here's how you function and you move within the life of it. Make sense? All right. Here, verse 9 and 10 says this. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, in everything. All right, I want to spend just a short time here. The big takeaway from this is that we are to live with humility and character. Live with humility and character, all right? Just as Jesus wasn't above any task because he washed his disciples' feet, neither are we to be above any task, all right? In fact, we consciously are to live to serve other people. That's what Paul means when he says well-pleasing here. It means that we're consciously trying to serve those that we work for. And then secondly, we work with character, which means we don't steal and we're dependable, that we follow through with the tasks that have been given to us, and we don't do things like petty larceny, (laughs) all right? That's what Paul's kind of placing before us, all right? So that's all I'm going to spend time on here. All right, so summarize this, all right? There's a lot. Five different groups. Here's what I believe Paul's placing before us here. This is a vision that allows you, gives you a picture of what it looks like to live in the gospel and community here, but also grow up in the gospel, you have a people that model the gospel before you, people that have gone before you that show, what, show you what it looks like to live in reverence in older men and older women, but then you have a younger generation that they're living to give their life away to serve other people, all possessing a humility and a blamelessness in their lifestyle. That's the kind of vision that Paul's calling the church to be. Like, this is what it looks like to live within the household of God. A people that are wanting to give their oldness away to a younger generation to show them how sweet it is to follow Jesus. And then a younger generation that's working to try to give their life away to where other people can count on them. But then they also are partnering with other people in this life to see the vision of the gospel live before a watching world. That's the vision that Paul's placing before us here in this, for the life of the church. And I want to be a part of it. Like, that's what I want for us. Uh, Oh my gosh, I want this for us. I want a a church that it feels like every people that come in here have a place to belong. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your social economic status. Like, there's a place for you here that you're needed for us to grow up into maturity in Jesus. Like, that's what I want for us here. Amen? But... We need the why. We need the why. All right, Paul's placing before us, here's what I want you to, here's how I want you to live as a Christian. Here's what it looks like. Here's what role you can play. But we need the why, which we get in verses 11 through 14. So just bear with me for a little bit longer and let me work through this because it's beautiful. All right, 11 through 14 says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Oh my gosh. The grace of God has appeared. Salvation for all people. 
instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our, God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And look, he gave himself for us to redeem us for all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his possession, eager to do good works. So why do we live this way? It's because of the gospel. We live as a people with this kind of conduct and this kind of character because of the gospel. God brings us into his household for two reasons. First is to live in his grace. Look at verse 14 again. He gave himself, look, to redeem us from what? All lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Meaning he's done all the work for you. He, he wants you to have nothing to do with your former way of life. In fact, he, wanted, he did that so much that he redeemed you through his life, death, and resurrection. And then what happened as a result of that is it cleanses you. You get Christ's perfection. He got all of your sin so that he could bring you into the household and then that you're eager to do good works, meaning that you're eager to, eager to live as Jesus lived in this life. You were brought in here. Look at the way that Paul uses that he redeemed you and that he cleansed you for himself. This is a matter of factness. This is the state by which you live in now. It's not something that anything can pluck you out of God's hand. It's not that you worked for your salvation and so then you can work yourself out of salvation. No, this is you get to live in grace. That's the first reason you're brought into the house. You can't mess it up. And then secondly, it's to be trained in his grace. In 1880, there's an author, Canon Hay Aitken. He wrote a book called The School of Grace, and the title is based off of verse 12. So here's what it says. For God's grace has appeared, and it instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. The word instructs here at the very beginning of that is often translated to train. So here's what Aiken said. Grace not only saves, but it undertakes our training. Training requires two things. It works certain things out of you, but then it also works certain things into you. So verse 12, if you're looking at this, the things that training works out of you are this godlessness, this lack of reverence for God that you live opposed to him, and then also worldly lust, meaning that you just work and you live for the things that the world lives for. The gospel works this out of you. But then it also trains you into to live in a sensible, righteous, godly way. So there's this pastor in Dallas, his name is Josh Howerton, and he gave this illustration about this young man that used to be in his youth group. All right, guy was peculiar, right, to say the least. So he showed up, and he was just socially awkward to the, like, highest degree. So he would walk in, and um, whenever somebody was nice to him, he would, like, lick himself. He'd, like, lick his hand. <laughs> Weird, right? Like, can you imagine that? Like, somebody just, like, licking their hand as you're nice to them? And so, like, it got to such a point that people were really troubled. And, the, like, multiple church leaders, like, leaders within his youth group would come up and be like, hey, what's going on with so-and-so? He's like, I don't know. I'll try to sit down and get to know him a little bit better. As he did, he found out he was a, a, a child that was adopted. And whenever he was brought into a home, his parents were awful to him. So at times they would lock him into a kennel with a family dog. And so the dog was nice to them, nice to him. And whenever he was nice to him, it would lick him. And so this boy, when other people were nice to him, would lick himself to show like a sign of thankfulness and the sign that like someone is actually being kind and sweet towards me because that wasn't his normal human interactions that he had in his home. Like deeply troubling, right? What he ends up saying is like, look, what this child learned was actually instilled in him and he needed a community of faith that would actually work it out of him as well. What he learned 
from community, he also needed a community that would help him work it out as well. That's God's vision for the church. God's vision is that he's bringing people that are coming from broken, shattered pasts, deep darkness and sin. Some of us have walked in things that we don't want to tell other people about. But here's the good news for you. Jesus knows everything that's happened in your life, which means that you don't have to hide. And you actually have this community of faith that God has placed around you, that the things that you have learned from your former way of life, he now gives you a community of faith that help you tease it out as well, train it out. And here's what, what Aiken is saying. Here's what Paul is saying, that God's, the gospel brings you into the household, and then God's household also gets the gospel in you. You see that? God brings you with the grace that appeared to us in Jesus to bring us into his family. There's nothing that can, that can pluck you out. You live in God's grace. But then you train in this school of grace that's called the church that then trains out the things that were put into you in your former way of life and a community of faith that then trains new things into you. And it's all Grace. This is God's vision for his church. It's the basis, it's the reason why God loved you to the extent that he sent Jesus. He showed grace to you in Christ Jesus to all people, salvation for all people so that you can live in grace. It's your control word over your life. But now it's the thing that we also live and train ourselves in as we await for the day that Jesus comes back again. It's the school of grace. So look, you need the church. You need the church. It's a place where the household message is the gospel that you never move beyond. It's the thing that speaks truth to you every single time that you gather with the church. It's a community of faith that loves you no matter what you've done in the past and wants you to envision living with Christ in the future and helps you to live that out here in the present as we all wait for Jesus to come back to see his face to face. You need the church. And as we do it, we need two things in order for us to live into this vision that God has given for the church. The first one is his spirit. We need the spirit of God. We need the good news of this gospel, the power that actually made it happen, the Holy Spirit that's a gift to us in order for us to walk in it together. We need the Holy Spirit and look, we have it. God gifts it to us when we accept Jesus and we walk with Jesus in this life. And the second is we need abundance of grace towards one another. This isn't a community of faith that have it all figured out. It's a school of grace that we're all looking and training for what it looks like to live into this new relationship with Jesus that we have because of the grace of God. So let's be a dependent people. Oh my gosh, let's be a people that are gracious towards one another. It's a vision I want to be a part of, don't you? Let's pray that God will allow us to do so.